Our text is found in Mark 11 this morning, verses 20 through 25. They'll be on the screen behind me. Please follow along while I read. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if anyone has anything against you, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Thank you, Seth, very much for leading us in worship this morning. We appreciate you helping prepare our hearts to receive this word preached. And I want to further prepare our hearts by praying. So if you'll please bow with me as we go to the Lord and ask him for his help this morning to receive this word rightly as we ought. Will you please bow? Father, we know that we need your help The truth is, if we think we don't, we have been deceived. Father, I pray that you would lift any deception that may be in this room this morning, that you would please open hearts to believe the truth, and I pray that you would continue to teach us what you were teaching the twelve that day in the visual parable of the withered fig tree. Lord, you still have more to teach us through it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled the message this morning, Faith, Prayer, Forgiveness. Because if you had noticed in the text, that's the three things that the Lord chose to focus on when responding to the twelve. But my question is this. What do faith, prayer, and forgiveness have to do with the fig tree that Jesus cursed? How do those even connect? Well, it seems as though Jesus totally missed Peter's uh, point when bringing up the fig tree, and it just seems like Jesus felt like teaching on these three topics, but we'll see, in fact, that there is a connection and why that connection is actually important for you and I today. Um, We're actually going to start in verse 22 because, as you recall from last week, those of you who were here last week or those of you who happened to hear the sermon last week online, perhaps, we've already covered verses 20 and 21. We connected those to last week's message because at the beginning of last week's message, we had Jesus going to the fig tree, finding nothing on it, cursing it, then going into the temple, making things right in the temple that were wrong, and then leaving and seeing the fig tree withered the next day. It is still connected to what we're going to talk about today, though. So, since we've already covered verses 20 and 21 last week, let's just go ahead and start in verse 22, because Jesus comes with this reply to Peter when he says, Look, Lord, at the tree. And Jesus says in verse 22, Have faith in God. (laughs) I want you to remember what the cursing of the fig tree represented. That Israel was cursed for their hypocrisy, for their lack 
of fruit. That's what we learned about last week. The Lord had just finished condemning the faithless acts that he found when he entered the temple, right? And now he's talking about the effects of real faith. He'd encountered faithlessness, so now he's going to talk about faithfulness and real faith. Because faith was the starting place for everything that people should have found in the temple or should have practiced in the temple when they were appearing at the temple. That's what the temple was for. What was the temple for? The temple was the place where God's presence dwelled here on earth. The temple was for the people to be able to approach God through right sacrifices, through right means, the means and the sacrifices that God had laid down, where he said, worship me this way, receive forgiveness from me this way, here at this place where I dwell. And that's the only way we are to ever worship God in the way he tells us to come to him. We do not get to invent a God after our own liking, do we? We do not get to approach God in the way that we think is appropriate. Ask Nadab and Abihu. They thought, let's do this inventive thing. Let's worship God in this way. And as you might recall, it didn't work out so well for them, did it? That was actually the last breaths they took. So, faith which is why people go to the temple. They do it in faith, worshiping God rightly. Faith leads us to prayer. Prayer leads us to a heart that's also willing to forgive others. And that's the three points that Jesus is making in this text. Faith, prayer, forgiveness, they're all connected. So in verse 23, look what Jesus does. Jesus immediately begins talking about having faith, a sincere faith that, that doesn't doubt. You might remember that James who wrote the book of James, talks about a faith that doesn't doubt. In the very first chapter, getting right into it, he just comes right out and says this in James 1, 5 through 8. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The one who doubts, the one who doesn't have true, sincere faith, (laughs) the Lord tells us he's unstable, not just in some of his ways, all of them. Faith affects all of your life, and a lack of faith affects all of your life. Do you see that? So according to Jesus in verse 23, this kind of faith can cause mountains to move. Really? Really. In other words, legitimate faith in God can accomplish the impossible. Moving of mountains was a somewhat common Jewish metaphor for doing the seemingly impossible. 
We have different sayings, too, that we might use. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but we might bring up things to say, oh, oh that's impossible. Might use a saying here or there. Well, the, the Jews had those as well, and the moving of a mountain was often used. Actually, in the, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah uses it twice. He uses that metaphor two different times in his book to represent the impossible, the, the moving of a mountain or the bringing down of a, of a mountain. So the fruitlessness and the hypocrisy that had corrupted the heart of Judaism and was evidenced by what Jesus found at the temple, that fruitlessness can be overcome by faith, this real faith. That's the only way it can be overcome because a a fruitlessness that ran that deep in Jesus' society that it had corrupted one of the most important Jewish holidays, had corrupted the most important geographical location on planet Earth at that time. That's how deep it ran. They were totally content and happy with the outer courts of the temple being filled with greed, manipulation, extortion. They were fine with it. That's how deep it ran. So how can that be corrected? How can that be fixed? It seems impossible. And it is. The only way it can be corrected is faith alone. John Calvin had this to say about faith. He said, It's faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. What's he mean? What's the point? Well, in the context there, what he was saying is true, authentic, real, saving faith will always be accompanied by works of righteousness. Let me say that again, because you really need to get this. Because so many people don't get this. I didn't get this for a long time when I was unsaved, yet thinking I was saved. True, authentic, saving faith will always be accompanied by works of righteousness. A desire for righteousness and holiness is born out of real faith. In other words, no holiness, no heaven. And the Bible teaches that. I'm not putting that on you. I'm saying a clear, quick reading of the Bible will show you that if there's no real, genuine fruit in someone's life, then it's like the fruitless fig tree that we saw and only worthy to be cursed according to Jesus. That's why he did that. Those were the very fruits that the religious establishment of Jesus' day was lacking. So how can that broken establishment of Jesus' day, how can it possibly be corrected and made right? Well, the answer, faith that moves mountains. That kind of faith. And how can your broken relationship with God broken by your sin, broken by your rebellion, how can it be made right? The answer is the same. Only by faith in what the Lord God has done. What has the Lord God done? Well, he did this work through the Lord Jesus. Jesus made the way for sinners to be made righteous who are unrighteous. We, in and of ourselves, are unrighteous. Might not be new news to any of you, but still it needs to be reiterated because unless we see our unrighteousness as truly unrighteous, we won't see God for how gracious he is in sending his son Jesus, the righteous one, taking the wrath for 
the sinful ones, the innocent being punished for the guilty. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what the word of God says. And that is the most wonderful exchange you will ever receive. That is the best return on investment you'll ever get. A perfect righteousness in exchange for your awful sinfulness. That's amazing. So true faith in God was the only hope for true worship to be returned to the temple of that day. And it's the only hope for you to become the temple today, in this day. So the church, the called out ones, that's what the word church means, by the way, called out ones. The saved are the temple of God. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians 3.16. You know John 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Where the spirit of God dwells, that's the temple. The spirit of God dwells in believers now in the new covenant. That's why Paul can say, do you not know you're the temple? You are the temple of God because the spirit of God dwells in you. So, in the three things that our Lord discusses, he refers to faith first, because without it, change isn't possible. Change is not possible without faith, is it? Sure, some getting rid of bad habits, perhaps, but not the cleansing of the soul of a sinner, not the removal of God's wrath upon you that you deserve because of your sin. That is not possible. The rising of a dead soul to become a living being spiritually for God, that is not possible without faith. The Bible actually even says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. Next, Jesus shows us what this faith will lead to. A real faith like that, what else is it going to lead to? Well, let's look. Verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. Now, notice what the first word in that sentence is. What's the first word in verse 24? You see it? It's the word, therefore. Showing that what he's about to say is the natural conclusion to what he just taught. Like if I said something, blah, 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 therefore, blank. If I said this, therefore, that, it just shows this is the natural Conclusion, this is the natural thing that's going to come next because of what I just said, right? So what's the natural thing that's going to come next after what Jesus just said? A genuine belief in God through Jesus, born of the Spirit, will lead to communication with God in prayer. That's the natural flow of a real faith. Now, we have to be careful with this text. This text has been twisted and mutilated and assaulted to say things that it doesn't say. So before we draw the foolish conclusions from this text that too many false, deceptive, heretical teachers have tried to teach us, we have to first compare Scripture with Scripture. Some have tried to say that this text means that you can ask God for anything your heart wants. 
And as long as you believe hard enough, God will do it. And that's a God that mankind likes to invent. A God that gives you exactly what you want. And that's why so many people in our society are mad at God. Because they've invented a God after their own liking and thought this God to show me that he likes me, he's supposed to give me what I want. And so he didn't give me what I want, and therefore I'm mad at him. You ever heard that before? I have. A lot. And it just goes to show me that people don't have an understanding of the biblical God. They have to receive that through reading the scriptures. We don't receive it any other way. Not through movies. Not through popular songs. You don't get your theology through those. You get it only through the word of God. This is the inspired text of God, from God, to man, about who God is and what he's like and how we are to approach him and how we are to be saved from our sins. Otherwise, you are mad at God and it's probably a God that you've invented just to let you know. Because God in heaven doesn't exist to give you what you want. He doesn't. I am not trying to be insensitive in saying this. But God doesn't exist for you. You exist for God. And that's why we get this crazy mix-up of beliefs in our society. And people saying, I'm mad at God because my son got cancer. I'm mad at God because I didn't get this job. I'm mad at God because my father died when I was young. I'm mad at God because he didn't do exactly what I wanted him to do. And that's what God's supposed to do. Obey me. And that's not God. And that's not how God works. And the reason why people are mad at God for not giving them what they want is because they don't see their actual, true, real need. What's their actual, true, real need? Forgiveness of sins. Your plane is crashing, and God has given you the parachute. You have not put it on. You don't see that you are crashing in a plane. You don't see it. You're just mad that the stewardess didn't bring you another drink. And your plane is crashing. And God is saying, put on my parachute, the Lord Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You don't see your need for sin. That's why you don't see God rightly. That's why we also don't communicate with him rightly in prayer. And that's why we get all this crazy talk about, this is what this verse means. Ask God for whatever you want, and then you'll get it. And then they can say then, so if you didn't get it, it, the problem is your faith isn't strong enough, so you're the problem. So what do we do with this? Well, we have to go to the Word of God and understand and know clearly what this text is, is teaching us. Because if we compare Scripture with Scripture, if we look through the lens of other clear verses, at those more difficult to understand verses, things get more clear. 
Uh, we use the easy parts of the Word of God to help us understand the more difficult parts of the Word of God. And what do we find? Well, let's just listen to some other verses that help us to see this one that we've got today a little more clearly. John 14, 13. This is in the same vein. It's talking about, it uses very similar language to what Jesus just used. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He's saying the natural conclusion for asking whatever you will ask in Jesus' name is that God will get glory. So we learn here that following Jesus' command and praying this way will clearly glorify God and not glorify me. It leads to God's glory, not my glory. John 15, 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Okay, same thought, right? And it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So secondly, we learn that this type of prayer, the type of prayer that Jesus is talking about, where the true believer is asking for whatever he wants. Notice I said the true believer is asking for whatever he wants. It will not only glorify God, as we've already saw, but it will result in fruit bearing. Do you see that? That you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It, it, it will also result in fruit bearing that shows that you're truly a Christian. It will result in a life that when people look at your life, they say, that's a Jesus follower there. That's a real Jesus follower. So this asking whatever you want in prayer it doesn't mean houses and Mercedes-Benz and your Fortune 500 interview. That's not what it's talking about. What's it talking about? You will ask for things that glorify God, that bear fruit in your life, that show that you're truly a follower of Jesus. That, that's what he's talking about here. That's what he means. Not necessarily things, but a way of living, a way of living that's glorifying to God. To put it all simply, when by faith your heart becomes so much like God's heart, you will ask for those things that God wants. His wants become your wants. And all his wants ultimately glorify him. And that's the whole reason you and I were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And living a life like that, it's going to be evidence, evident to everyone that you are a true follower of Jesus Christ. And that's also what was lacking from the temple in Jesus' day, was it not? A real true heart to glorify God, to seek him, to point to him, to build up his kingdom. All that Jesus found when he entered the temple that day were men wanting to build their own kingdom. Greedy. Irreverent. So Jesus was appalled by the lack of prayer but the evidence of theft because what did Jesus say is it not written my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations but you've made it a den of robbers is what he said so what's he finding a den of thieves what's he supposed to find a house of prayer true 
Mountain-moving faith leads to prayer, a type of prayer that's so lined up with God's heart that my desires flow from his desires, therefore glorifying him and causing me to bear fruit. Lastly, let's look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. If anyone, I'm sorry, (laughs) and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. You might remember in the book of Luke, once Jesus was sort of starting to get popular, he had just preached the Sermon on the Mount, and just a few sections later, this, this Pharisee named Simon basically says, I want to know this guy, and he invites him over to his house. And while he's at his house reclining at table, a woman of the night comes in with a very expensive alabaster flask jar full of very aromatic ointment. These were usually saved for very special occasions. She breaks that flask, pours it on Jesus' feet, begins weeping. Her tears fall so heavily off of her face that they wet Jesus' feet, and she begins wiping his feet dry and clean with her hair. Simon, looking over at what's happening, is appalled because he says, oh my goodness, this woman, first of all, she's a prostitute, and look what she's doing. And he says, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. Jesus looks up at Simon and says, let me ask you something. Let's say there was a a lender of money And uh, two different men owed him money. One owed him five silver coins. The other one owed him 50 silver coins. Neither one of them can pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Which man would love him more? And Simon says rightly, I suppose it was the man who was forgiven more. And Jesus said, you're right. You see this woman? See what she's done for me? She's wet my feet with her tears. You you didn't offer me any water for my feet. She's anointed my feet with this oil. You didn't offer me any uh, oil for my head when I came in. And you didn't greet me with a kiss. And she's not stopped kissing my feet. I tell you, this woman, he says in so many words, loves much because she's been forgiven much. Those of us who know the sinfulness of our sin understand the graciousness of grace, don't we? When you see your sin for what it is, it makes you so much more thankful that you were forgiven because you start to truly understand for the first time, listen, for the first time, until until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, to all this, you don't actually see it. You may think you see it, but you don't actually see it. How do I know this? I'm speaking from experience, okay? Because I, I, I understood when I was unsaved. I understood kind of feeling bad for what I'd done, but it was usually just because I got caught. <laughs> and now I've got to say I'm sorry, and now I've got to sit here while these people bust my chops and tell me how bad I am. And so I'm like, ugh. But until... I was sitting that Sunday at Shades Valley 
community church, sitting in one of the chairs just like this, until that Sunday in 1998, when the Holy Spirit reached in and twisted my heart, and I realized, oh gosh, oh, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm bad, I'm really, I'm a bad person, I'm really in trouble here. Until that happened, no, I didn't understand the sinfulness of sin. And that made me want to run to Jesus because he was the one who bore the punishment for my sins on the cross. And so that's why Jesus has this to say about forgiveness. Because how could we, who've been such recipients of such grace, not be willing to extend forgiveness to others? It's a natural reflex. It's supposed to be the natural reflex of our hearts to be willing to forgive others who've sinned against us, which is why Jesus says this. You see, when we finally get it, that he's made a way for us to be saved, and that was what made us righteous, the Son of God, taking the blast of God's wrath in our place that we should have taken, well, how can we then withhold forgiveness from those who've wronged us? How could we deem others as unforgivable? Right? So, in conclusion, let me show you this behind me. Mountain-moving faith leads to God-glorifying prayer, which shows fruit-bearing forgiveness. That's the point I believe Jesus is trying to make in this whole section. Mountain-moving faith leads to God-glorifying prayer, which shows fruit-bearing forgiveness. These are the things the Lord Jesus should have found in the temple. The withered fig tree, of course, was that object lesson of God, showing that the curse of God falls upon those who profess to be fruit bearers but lack real fruit and who profess to be true but are actually false. That was the point of last week's message. Now for those of us who've been saved, we are the temple of God because the Spirit of God lives within us. So let me just end with this then, okay? The Spirit of God within us He grows within us that mountain-moving faith. He guides us into the God-glorifying prayers, and he grants us the fruit-bearing forgiveness. None of this is possible without the Spirit of God. This is a work of God within man. If you've not experienced that work, guess what? This is a day of hope and encouragement for you because God is speaking to your heart right now, offering it to you. He's offering this to you free. He's not looking for you to fix yourself and come to him. He's saying, come to me dirty. Come to me unclean like you are. I clean you up. You come humbly, knowing that you're a sinner, turning from your sins, putting your faith and trust in me, and this is how you're saved. These are the things that are found by the way, these things that we just mentioned, these are the things that are found in the true temple of the living God, his church. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray. Father, this truth is simple yet powerful. And I pray, Lord, that you would please be building within us that strong foundation of these simple truths. Lord, these these simple truths, faith, prayer, forgiveness, which are all connected. Lord, these things are foundational for us in all that we do. And so, Lord, please, of course, be helping us not to forget the foundation, not to neglect it. Lord, I pray, asking that you would please help us to be that temple that's pleasing to you, Lord Jesus. You are coming again, and when you come to receive us to yourself, Lord, I pray that you will find a people ready, holy, fruit-bearing, so that we don't receive, of course, your curse, but we receive your blessing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Those are the words we want to hear. Those are the words I want to hear. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name.